Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to improve themselves, overcome obstacles, and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. I was surprised by how many of you ended up listening to Friday's special bonus episode. It was a Q&A. You sent me some questions that you wanted to know about me. It was fun and also self-absorbed for me to do it. And I really, I did enjoy the end product of it. And I feel like we were able to connect a little bit more. So if you haven't checked that one out or my episode from last Wednesday with Jansen Bradshaw, I've included links to those episodes in my show notes. You can find my show notes on my website, aboutprogress.com. And you can also find me on social media at Facebook and Instagram at About Progress. I have a giveaway going on right now for my favorite planner. So you can see that easily through any of those social media links, including my blog as well. Today's episode is brought to you by Fabletics, a fitness apparel company that I have been obsessed with for a few years. Fabletics provides its customers with affordable yet high quality athletic wear with new styles added each month. Sign up now to get two leggings for $24 by following the link I have set up for you in the show notes. And you guys, these leggings really are amazing. I love them. We're also partnering with Monate. Monate stands for Modern Nature, a hair company whose mission is to spread beautiful hair via naturally based products that are scientifically proven to work. Monate has truly revolutionized my hair, and I'll share more about Monate during our mid-episode break today. Let me tell you who you'll be hearing from today. It's Gaina Lynn Condy. She is an author, editor, journalist, speaker, mother of two miracle children, and she has faced some of the most incredible obstacles I've ever heard of a single person encountering in a single lifetime. This is just a small sampling Her parents divorced when she was young. She's had chronic illness for many years. She's dealt with infertility. And in recent years, her sister Megan's passing by suicide. And yet there is so much light to Gainalyn and so much learning to do from her. Gainalyn talks about how the theme of surrendering has been interwoven throughout her life. And how giving in doesn't mean giving up. I'd advise you to listen to this one a few times, seriously, or even with a notebook handy, as you are about to be instructed by a brilliant, wise, and wonderful teacher. Hi, I'm here with Gainalyn Condi. Hi, Gainalyn. Hi, Monica. You are the best to come on here. You've been so patient with me for a whole summer of waiting to schedule this out. So thank you for taking the time. Like I said, it's always God's timing, so it's great. It's perfect. Well, can you start by giving our listeners an introduction? Sure. Um, So I'm a middle-aged 46-year-old mom of two. I've been married 26 years. I live in Lehigh, Utah, but I grew up in California. I'm an author and speaker, and I write a column for the Daily Herald newspaper, which is called Everyday Faith. And um, I... I have uh, parents that were divorced and remarried, so I have a lot of siblings that I'm the oldest of in a in kind of a blended family. And um, I have a son that is serving an LDS mission in Zimbabwe in Africa, and he's been there eight months, and that's kind of 
a heart and soul of our family right now. We mm-hmm. we feel like part of us are in Africa, and we have a huge map in our basement, and we we feel uh, love for the Zimbabwe people and and missionary work. And then we have a 13-year-old daughter, Brooklyn, and she just started eighth grade, and um, she's amazing. And we are now dog owners, which people that know me and follow me know that that is a great um, testimony of God talking to moms, (laughs) because I'm not a dog. Yeah, I'm not a dog person in general, but um, when you have two children and one leaves for Africa, um, you do crazy things to help support your other child. Yeah, so you do whatever it we, takes. We now have a dog named Ruby, and she is a Sweet. black poodle Shih Tzu. And, and um, so that's, that's just a little bit about me. Well, this is just one of those times where there's, I mean, there's so much we could go into. You have such an interesting life and, and you do so many interesting things. I mean, with your resume alone, I mean, you've written how many books now? Is it six? Um, I just turned in a sixth book and I started a seventh, but the sixth one will come out after the seventh. So I have five oh, out wow. right okay. now. Yeah. So yeah. you know you're you're an author, you you've been an editor, you're you're a journalist, uh you're a speaker, you travel everywhere to speak. And I know you're in between doing that right now. Um but I did want to start more with you at your roots and I feel like we've gotten hints of who you were as a child kind of growing up. In in your book I can do hard things with God, you wrote uh the first essay in that book and you talked about how from a young age, you felt like you had to take the world on your shoulders and that you had to live a perfect life to help your family. And I was wondering if you could go more into why that was the case for you. Sure. Um, like I shared in the introduction, my parents, I jokingly say for, for Mormon culture, they were divorced before Marie Osmond got a divorce. And oh, so... Yeah. <laughs> back in the day, it wasn't as common in the church, and, and now for an LDS culture, it's much more common, unfortunately. Um, and my mom was a single mom with two children, and I'm the oldest, and and for all oldest firstborn children out there, they will understand this will resonate with them. I think we generally come to earth thinking that we're in charge of saving the world um, mm. and that we know better than everyone else. Um, but but that rang more true for the family situation we were in and that my mom dealt with some struggles, mental illness struggles, and she would be the first to share those with mm. um, your, your listeners. Um, she worked, and my sister and I, and, and she kind of made our way through. My parents did a brilliant job of staying friends. And I always mm. mention that because there is a lot of divorce in the world. And I used to write for a divorce website. And I, and I advocate that you can, you can reach that place. It may not be easy for all parties involved. Um, but my parents did that in, in respect to their children. Mm, so I never incredible. heard them speak ill of one another, but we grew older and figured out for ourselves why there was a divorce. Mm, so okay. for those that may be listening that are going through that, I think that's a powerful example to me. My parents aren't perfect and they remarried and had um, additional children. And so I I have a lot of um, half siblings that I would never call them that. 
Um, mainly because I was 10 years old or older when they were all born, basically, Mm. and I've changed all their diapers. So I felt like I was Mm. kind of the mom. And I felt like my mom um, needed a mom sometimes. Her mom left when she was seven. And, um, yeah, so there was just some hard dynamics that um, I, I think from an early age, I write pretty honestly in my book, I Can Forgive with God, mm-hmm. um, that I felt like this awareness at a very young age, I think around seven, that my father had a job for me to do a mission, and he has that for everyone. It's not, I'm not sharing that thinking somehow I'm different or, you know, more unique or needed or special, but I just have this awareness and I think all of us have a mission we come to earth to do. And I mistakenly interpreted that to mean that if I did everything perfectly, then some of the pain and struggle that I was seeing in my family would be eliminated and that somehow I could eliminate it for them, but also prevent it for my future family, which really set me on a course of making some good decisions but it also set me on a, a lifetime kind of struggle with perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And I I feel like I'm constantly in recovery on that. Yeah. Um, I've had some opportunities to really have that slam in my face. And so mm-hmm. I've had to I've had to understand that. But I I feel like it's it's kind of always been with me. My mother even says from a young age. I I love to organize and clean, and kind of my speaking career started with a lot of requests to to travel around to church groups and talk about organization and and cleaning. That was something I came to earth knowing how to do, Mm -hmm. and I I found that if I did that, somehow I could put order into our home, and that created some sense of peace, which I really highly believe in that. I believe that when you... You know, care for your home, you invite a spirit there. But I've also come to know that um, that was coming from a place, too, where I was trying to control some some things that weren't in my control. And that mm-hmm. was just one of the coping mechanisms that I came up with. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a strength for me, but I've also had to keep it in check. So yeah, I hope that answers ways. your question. Yeah. You know, one of the things I often worry about in my in my own mission, I think, to spread the word that, you know, perfectionism actually isn't a positive trait. I worry about people thinking I'm advocating for the other end of the spectrum, yeah. which is total apathy, which is yeah. absolutely not what I'm saying. I think that when you said, you know, it's something you have to keep in balance. I'd like to know more about how you learn that. Um, and maybe that goes into us talking about you know, going into young adulthood and marriage for you, how did this pattern of behavior living to these impossible standards, how did it continue and what was the effect of that? And how did it teach you that it was something you needed to um, start being watchful over? Well, I think I was probably always kind of aware that um, it stood out as a characteristic. I think my family members would always mention that as one of the top characteristics to describe me. Um, Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think in some ways that drive, that internal drive, allowed me to push through some difficult things in my life growing up. And uh, I had a baby sister that died when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And like I said, my parents 
um, my mom struggled with things and, and uh, my sister did. And then there were additional um, challenges that I think happened in um, blended families. And it got me to want to be in college and, and move forward and to change patterns. And I always say, I hope my kids change patterns that they've seen in our home. You know, I hope every generation kind of evolves and gets better and stronger. And mm-hmm. But as I got married to my wonderful husband, who is um, a very calming, grounding influence, and knew pretty much because we were friends for a year before we ever were anything more than that. He um, saw my dark side, I would say, and so he yeah. he saw that he saw the the intensity that I uh, tackle life with. And I would say, for all marriages, what we are attracted in one another often becomes the things we may argue about later on in mm-hmm. a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I love his quietness, but now you know. 26 years of marriage, we've learned how that I want him to communicate more. And he loves my drive and sometimes my intensity is the thing that annoys him. So uh-huh. we got we got married and um, moved to Arizona and we both were in college and working full time. And I was um, quickly diagnosed with lupus and a heart condition with that disease. Wow. And I don't talk about it a ton now, but mm-hmm. I've done three years of chemotherapy in a, in connection with that. And um, Around I was trying this to time, do, or was that after yeah, years so of dealing with it? That's a treatment that um, is an option if you develop certain symptoms with lupus, which I did, which was fluid around my heart. Mm. So the immune system becomes suppressed with autoimmune disease, your immune system's attacking your body. So an immune suppressant drug like chemo will do um, that at a lower dose than maybe if you had cancer. But the side effects were similar. I still lost my hair slowly and I was student teaching. And I I remember having this chronic illness and the doctor said I would never have children. And I was trying to finish school. My husband was trying to finish school. We were trying to pay for school ourselves. We had no health insurance had this heart condition and this health issue. My appearance changed. I was on a lot of medicines that changed how I looked. And I I had to get really clear about what I felt was the most important thing to accomplish every day because I had a very limited amount of energy. Mm-hmm. And um, that became, became a very sacred time for me. Really? And that sounds kind of strange to say, but I learned a lot about prayer at a different level. I learned about um, what God felt was most important, and um, I had to practice surrender maybe sooner than I would have. So I think chronic illness can become anything of a challenge, can become a gift, and and looking back, it also was preparatory for some other challenges that came. Yeah. And I could see where I had some emotional, spiritual, physical learning that happened during that period of time of intensity. Um, we did, we we made it through that. And I did hmm. a year of chemotherapy. I graduated college. My husband graduated college. We'd been married almost five years. Um, doctors said, you know, it would be impossible for me to have children. And as an LDS person with a patriarchal blessing that said I was going to be a mother, I kind of thought, well, that's not going to be the truth for me, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. So I remember not 
feeling like all the other moms, the young moms that were having promptings to have babies. Yeah. And looking back, that was a protection that we were not prompted to have a baby sooner because mm-hmm. that would have triggered the lupus sooner. Oh, yeah. So... Once we knew I had lupus and we had all of the kind of pieces to assemble, we moved to San Diego. My husband took an accounting job there, and I had a, an elementary school um, career path, so I had an elementary degree, and I was a long-term sub and, and worked in the temple in San Diego, and we started talking to specialists. And we were able to finally eventually, through a lot of surrender, I you know, I would just say, it was good. We turned over every stone. We talked to doctors, we whatever, but there became a point where we had tried everything and, mm-hmm. and there wasn't a baby coming yeah. and there was a lot of surrender. And that's probably a theme in my life mm-hmm. <laughs> is learning strength and surrender and that balance of, because I, I do like to see progression in my life. I like to achieve. I like to move mm-hmm. forward. And when I don't see progression, that shuts me down in a really spiritual way that's not healthy sometimes because um, surrender I think is just as much a part of this journey of life that I've I've learned in some key times and and infertility was definitely a surrender I would see these girls get pregnant that didn't want to get pregnant and I would see these moms get pregnant very easily and I would see people get pregnant that didn't want to be pregnant and it just wasn't happening Um, and then we finally were pregnant and I, you know, that boy is in, in Africa now. Mm-hmm. And I would say there was a time in his life when things were challenging yeah. that he made friends and had experiences that I realized if he had come three years earlier, he would have missed those windows. And that was a powerful, That's like, crazy. I was, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I always say to people that deal with infertility, we had seven years of it. So it wasn't seven weeks. It wasn't seven months. It was seven years. And in Mormon years, that's like 27 years, right? Yeah, so, I bet it feels like that for <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, but I remember feeling like, and I share this with those that struggle with infertility, the minute they handed me that baby, all those years went melted away. You know, I mean, it was as much as I thought that pain would never go. The minute I had that baby in my arms, he was 10 pounds two weeks early. He wow. is. Yeah. And and for a lupus baby, that was like kind of, we had lots of doctors come visit us in the hospital because they wanted to meet the 10 pound lupus baby. That's unusual. But he grew up to be a six foot seven, 19 year old. So he <laughs> he go. was, yeah, he was big from the beginning. But I remember thinking that years later, like, God's timing is perfect, even though often we're on the other side praying, pleading, wondering why something good won't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had this uh, understanding of some key people in his life that he literally would never have passed in 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 his life had he come, you know, all those years before when I was praying he would come. So just a thought that, That's amazing. I, you know... Yeah, yeah. So, and then we had that sweet boy, and then um, I felt pretty content. And even though I knew there was probably, um, I knew there was a daughter, I just didn't, I just didn't know if it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And and the timetable really too. Yeah, and, I, and then, yeah. And by that point, we had moved to Utah. My husband had enrolled at BYU to get his master's degree and I had a seven month old and I felt like life was, life was good. Um, 
and then and then my son was about three, and I had done another whole year of chemo with a three year old oh, wow. and that I was living in this little townhome complex in Provo, Utah, and the mothers in that townhome were my tribe like mm-hmm. they they just saved me. We would have you know these like commune dinners and and they never made me feel like I was the charity case, but I needed help and and that was a cherished time for me. But around the time I finished that another year of chemo, I started to feel the nudge to have another baby, and I thought this is crazy. I've just thrown up for a whole year, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I oh, don't really wow. <laughs> and don't want to throw up for another so our, almost well, year. Yeah. So a long story short, that prompting was correct, but the theme of my life is she still didn't come for another mm-hmm. three years. So yeah. um, my children are six years apart. I get asked about where my other kids are, and do you we really? joke there. Yeah, I do often. Like, where are your other kids? And I say, well. We hide them under the closet with Harry Potter, and we pull them out at Christmas for pictures. You know, I just say crazy things. I don't think, uh, I think people know me a little bit more now, um, so I don't get that asked as often because I think people, there's more people familiar with my story, but it's funny. It's funny that people wonder where that gap is from and where other Hmm. kids are, but I will just say for any other families out there that have big gaps, my children absolutely love each other so much. And um, honestly, in a kind of in a freaky way, they are so close and love each other and respect each other. And so that six year gap, I, if other families are dealing with gaps, don't, don't stress too much about it because, you you know, in our family, yeah, it's worked out perfectly well. So that's kind of where our family began and developed. And probably my first big lesson in surrender was through infertility and chronic illness. Mm -hmm. You know, I have some, some questions in regards to that, but first, if you can enlighten me, are, are you in remission with lupus or is this something that continues? I know it's an autoimmune disease, but um, I'm wondering if it's something you... My last, my last 10 years have been my best. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there are, are a few symptoms that kind of never completely disappear. I tend to not even, I've just started talking about it a little bit more recently because there's one symptom that's kind of raised its head again mm-hmm. and people have noticed it and that is hair loss. Oh, and, uh, yeah. yeah, so I've cut a lot of my hair the last year and, um, some of that could be, Lupus gets triggered by hormone changes, and so that can be just interfacing a little bit. I would just say, though, I would count remission as my general feeling. Mm-hmm. I do have, you know, some fatigue and arthritis and heart pain and hair loss, and those are symptoms that seem to kind of fluctuate. But for what I've asked of my body to do, especially the last three years, five books and over 250 speaking events mm-hmm. and a son graduated on a mission. It's like a miracle. Yeah. It's such a miracle. So I, I just say that I try to lead with authenticity. And so I don't avoid talking about it, but I would say that I do a lot of preventative work to be in a place of health yeah. and that doesn't eliminate everything. 
but I definitely don't feel like it defines me. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to show disrespect for those that do deal with chronic illness because if if I'm going to be 100% honest, my mother, my husband, and my closest friends know and see my symptoms all the time. Yes. You know, the last year I've kind of slowly been declining a little bit more and um, I was doing everything I could think to do. Mm-hmm. And once again, the theme of surrender and strength, like Keeps coming using back. my agency. Yeah. That what can I do to make things better? And then how much of that is just surrendering the outcome of it? Well, thanks for um, kind of educating yeah. me more on that. Yeah. And, you know, and I want to go back a little bit when you were talking about Yes. You know, going through these really hard health problems as a young newlywed couple and then infertility, you talked about how those initial trials, you can now see prepared you for greater trials coming down the road. And I just thought, well, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> you yes, know, for people who are going through the thick of it, it's so, I know. like, how can it get worse than this, you know? Or, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so not to be a Debbie Downer, I just want to know the how were you able to have that perspective of this importance of learning from it? And instead of allowing your life to be based on this identity as a victim, which you easily could have in so many realms, you chose to learn from each phase of trials you were given. And I wanted to know how that came about for you and how someone else who was going through some really hard things learn how to do the same thing so that they are better prepared for what is coming later on. So the last four years, I would say, have been some of the most intense, even though, you know, we've just talked about infertility and chronic illness and my parents' divorce and those other things. And my husband has lost two jobs and dealt with some skin cancer. My sister committed Mm. suicide three years ago, which a lot of, um, I've done a lot of speaking and writing about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of my extended family members have had some, siblings have had some extreme things from um, fatal car accidents to shootings to their houses burning down. And it got, in answer to your question, I would just say this. I don't know. The reason my column for Daily Herald is titled Everyday Faith is I don't know another way to do it. I don't know another way you do life without faith. And I don't mean my Mormon faith. I just mean faith. So if you don't believe in my God, then find something bigger than you that you can hold on to. And then once you have that faith, this is what I do know. I do know that my Heavenly Father knows my learning plan perfectly. And... Looking back, I see that some of the most challenging, heart-wrenching times of my life have in some ways become the greatest blessings. They were the doorways or they were the pathways to learning. But beyond that, they literally, you know, like my chronic illness taught me some things about balance. Mm-hmm. I can't afford to not take care of myself today, even if I'm really driven to finish another book or speak or, you know, have a clean house or whatever it is. I have to make sure self-care is on the agenda mm-hmm. because for me, if it's not, I teach a principle called glass balls and rubber balls, and people may have heard this before. If you don't make your health um, 
a priority, it becomes a glass ball, which means if you drop a ball and you're juggling and it's glass, it will break. Mm-hmm. You drop a ball that's rubber, it will bounce. And I think there's seasons and times when I have a book deadline, my work is the glass ball. My family eating mac and cheese cereal or whatever, you know, right now I have a husband and a 13-year-old daughter. They can feed themselves pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the glass ball. But if I make my marriage the glass or they're the rubber ball. If I make my marriage the rubber ball for too long, it can become a glass ball. And so I think the challenge is, is that sometimes you feel like every area of your life, they're all glass balls. Mm -hmm. And I've come to know that some of the challenges I've had, challenges in my marriage have made my marriage something I protect. My health issues have made my health be something I, I care for and protect. Um, the loss in our family the last few years has has hopefully changed me in a way that I cherish family and life. I feel like I already did that before, but I also feel like all of those challenges make me hold tighter onto my faith. And so I would just say that I feel like God is always a preparatory God. He's not a gotcha God. He's not, like, jumping around the corner, even though I will honestly say that for a while there, I had some PTSD the last few years. I'm not going to lie. My first book came out um, probably perfect timing. My husband will often say that was a challenging year. He was working um, back in public accounting, which meant he was Mm. gone 90 hours a week. Yeah, my husband's uh, an accountant, too. Yes. So we were back after 12 years, we had done public accounting and tax seasons. He had been in private accounting and then he lost a job and took a job for half the price back in public accounting. And my first book was out and I was on a book tour and I had a teenage boy that was trying to graduate high school. It was a really, and I was dealing with the grief of my sister's suicide. That, that time I was probably saved by the fact that this book was out and I was speaking and with people that probably saved my life. Mm-hmm. But I will admit I had a little PTSD going on for a while. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I still do when the phone would ring and I would see a family member on caller ID, I started to get scared yeah. because there was so much, I haven't even disclosed all the things that were happening, but mm-hmm. there were so many things happening constantly that I, I kind of thought, okay, God, I give, I give like mm-hmm. I can't, and I even had someone say to me um, offhandedly, "I don't know if I want to be your friend because everything happens to you and your family." Mm. And I, that day was not a good day. That was the day my sister's house was burning down, oh. and I remember thinking, "Please don't even joke about that because it is yeah. starting to feel like there's something wrong." Mm-hmm. I, I will say that um, I know more now today that. Uh, God doesn't, um, when we say God doesn't give you anything you can't handle, I don't believe that. There's been so much the last few years that I really at times couldn't handle and Mm -hmm. didn't handle without Him. And that's the secret for me. So to answer your question, I don't know another way to do it other than um, to the point where my kids get annoyed because I want to see the analogy in something and I want to see the lesson. Mm -hmm. And some of these other things that we've touched on that I have had to surrender, I haven't always seen the lesson. And I don't always see the reason why. 
And that's when I find myself in the closet, you know, yeah. crying, calling my friend, saying, I, I can't, you know, here I, I'm in this, I call myself an ambassador of faith, and nothing is changing. And I don't, and I'm tired because nothing is changing. Mm -hmm. And I would advocate for a few trusted close friends. I call them truth seekers. And I've got some good Mm -hmm. truth seekers that when I'm in total distortion and total drama and I'm exhausted, I get there too. Mm -hmm. They're good to um, remind me. And sometimes they'll quote back me to myself and that makes me crazy. (laughs) I remember one night calling Calling my friend in tears about one of my children, and she starts quoting something from one of my books, and I thought, like, she got, like, four sentences in, and I thought, wait a minute, I I recognize what she's saying, what is she saying? (laughs) And she was reminding me in a very gentle way that, you know, I had learned this lesson already, and it had been 10 years before, and it just happened to be in the book, and so, Hmm. you know, even though the situation in front of me was new... I just believe that. I believe God just, like, gives us, like, English 101 and then English 204 and then English 405, and He does that in our lives, too. You know, and I like that you're being so real about how even when this is something you write books about and go around speaking about, it doesn't mean that it's always sunshine and roses, like, oh, another huge trial, no big deal. Like, you know, (laughs) I like that you're showing us that that is true faith, actually, is sweating through that really hard stuff, too, and still trying and still looking for what's the lesson. It's time for our first mid-episode break. I told you a little bit about Monate at the beginning of the episode. It's a hair company whose products have changed my hair the past eight months that I've used them and paid for the products out of my own pocket. And they've also changed my husband's. If you are looking for a sulfate-free, phosphate-free, naturally-based product that isn't going to just clean your hair but change it, this is the company for you. These products are formulated to match needs of different hair types for men, women, and children, and based in the best nature has to offer. So if your hair is greasy, if it's thinning like mine was, if your scalp is dry also like mine was, or your follicles shredding, your hair fuzzy, curls unmanageable, or it's just constantly flat. Monate has a system special just for you. My thinning hair has truly filled in so much and it's been growing like crazy. And my hair and scalp are healthier than they've been in over 10 years. I'm partnering with Monate because this company's hairlines have delivered on their promises for me and my family. And I want to share that with you. If you want to learn more, I have some resources linked up for you in my show notes. You can find those at aboutprogress.com. But you can also email me about it or direct message me. I'm happy to help out. My email is packerprogress at gmail.com. Let's get back to my chat with Gaina Lynn. Oh, I wanted to ask about fear. You know, like when you were going through that time, you're like, the phone's ringing. You know, yeah. I, I, I struggle with that feeling and I haven't had the terrible list of things that you have experienced, you know, and I wonder yeah. what you do to not live in fear of the next trial. Well, I share pretty openly in Hard Things book that mm. Megan's suicide was my greatest fear. And really? 
if anyone is dealing with mental illness in their family or in their life, um, my sister was 40 years old. I do a lot of speaking on every topic you can think of, but it doesn't matter if people ask me to come talk about prayer or raising kids or faith or whatever. I will always bring up suicide because it's one of those topics that no one wants to really talk about. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately statistics show it's on skyrocketing. And so here's, an evidence of my biggest fear, right? Yeah. And when that happened, it's we had we had watched her struggle for almost her entire life. That's forty years, mm-hmm. and we had watched Meg go into dips and big, deep valley pits. I call them the pit, and then come back out of them. And so, to tie back into your probably your first question suicide is hard on family and friends because it is the death that makes you do the what if game. And as many times as I logically knew that only God can save and I can't logically, I knew that, but emotionally I had evidence where I had helped her out of those pits. Mm I had sat on the phone. I had watched her rally and come back and she had had a good five years before she died. Um, And so to answer your question, um, that <laughs> that fractured me in a way that I I had gone through. I mean, we've touched on some of them. I had gone through some hard stuff already. You know, yes. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I grew up in a family that we didn't have a lot financially, and my parents had been divorced and mental illness and my lupus and, you know, infertility. And there had just been these these. Um, challenges in my sister's life that were very serious. She had been abused sexually, not within our family, but outside of our family. And mm-hmm. she dealt with learning disabilities. And so I felt like, you know, I kind of had eyes wide open. And there are people that deal with 10 times harder than me. My son lives in Africa. I get evidence every week in letters of yeah. people that have far less than I've had, and they're happier than I could ever possibly be. But I will say that when she died and she was found, that fractured something inside of me, that whole perfectionism, that that thought that somehow um, I had to really challenge my hope and faith. And I had to know at a core level that I believed what I believed. Yes. And 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 I would say that journey that year, I remember my son, he may not be happy I'm saying this, but he knows I tell people everything. Um, <laughs> I remember after that year kind of had passed. I didn't even realize how bad the grief was mm-hmm. until a year had passed. And what I mean by that is I still kept speaking. I finished a book and, and, um, but I I didn't know until I started to feel somewhat better that grief really settled into every core of my being. And for the first time in my life, I thought, oh, I could see where I would stay in bed and not go to go to church. You know, mm-hmm. I, I could feel that pull. And all of a sudden, I had an understanding of that. But I also realized that... Um, one of the biggest gifts of Meg's suicide was that I had to be okay with the brokenness in me. 
Because suicide at a very extreme level is getting to the point where you think the world will be better without you and that hope is lost, that somehow there won't ever be change or improvement. And if I was going to live, I had to get real with the parts of me that I didn't love. And in that grief, that was the gift. I was going to ask if that's what fractured the, your, the perfectionism in your mind that you, you had brought up earlier. I, I feel like I had been working on it for years, especially before I had children. I knew I had to get healthier about that. And I would say that my kids, if you were to interview them, they would still say that I am. Um, but I also know that um, I, I did a lot of boundary keeping so that hmm. there there was some there was some balance. I have friends that are super great at making cakes and sewing. That's not me. So they have to check themselves on not sewing all the time, right? <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> some, of, some of my strengths, I have to check myself on. They also allowed me to probably survive a chronic illness and finish school and have babies and do things that run mm-hmm. a magazine. And some of those blessings came because of that drive within me too. But I had arrested... I would say a lot of that in hopes to not damage my children because I didn't Mm. want to put that burden on them by my perfectionism. And yet, Mm. I I mean, I'm, I'm pretty aware that it was still something I, I had to, I had to deal with the, the other part of that I would say that was fractured is that here was this person that I felt like was more my child than even my sister. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was my mom's mom and my sister's mom. And, so that was a loss that I hadn't experienced before. Even though I had lost another sibling, I had lost a grandma that I held in bed when she died. She was like my mom. I had lost a father-in-law. I had lost other people. That fracture in me was like, if I'm, if I'm going to really um, survive this grief, I've got to get okay with some things not being okay. Okay. And, yeah, I see. and I would say this there and and not to jump too far into this I had written I can do hard things before Meg had died she loved that I was trying to get a book published I had had two rejections for that that book that manuscript um I almost gave up on it my friend Richard Paul Evans who people may know um had one of the original manuscripts and encouraged me not to give up I did some revisions and resubmitted it to Covenant in September of 2013 in March of 2014 is when Meg died. And so the original manuscript did not have her suicide story. Mm -hmm. But I share that because I had written that book only because I felt God told me to do it. And I argued with him and told him, there's too many books out there. You don't need me to write another book. And, you know, I kept having the prompting to do it and the title and the content basically was all there and each time I got a rejection letter from the two publishers that rejected that manuscript um I I went to God and said like are you serious do you do you want me to do this for, for real or did you just want me to have the experience of doing it did you not really want me to publish a book or did you just want me to write it to practice, you know? And I think people feel that way all the time. They they pray about things or they get impressions to do things and then it doesn't work out and they think, well, did I hear God wrong or maybe I'm not supposed to do that? Really, the truth was 
that book was not going to be published until Meg committed suicide. And that's the hard truth. Hmm. And God was not going to tell me that. So every time I would go back to prayer, frustrated about a rejection letter or the book not being published, Mm -hmm. I would hear very clearly, um, yes, you're supposed to write this book and keep going. And I didn't know what that meant. And so all of a sudden, six weeks after Meg was found, my publisher came to me and said, we want to publish this. And I knew immediately that the story that was supposed to be in there hadn't happened yet. Mm. So I literally, over, I think, an 18-hour period of time, wrote what, what was the first draft for the chapter that's there. And I was really knee-deep in the grief still. Yeah. I mean, it was raw. It mm-hmm. had just happened. Like, to write it and, and say it and, and speak it um, probably helped me move forward through it. Um, yeah. But it was still pretty soon. And I will say this, I have lost count of the thousands and thousands of readers. I Literally, Monica, I've lost count of the people that have reached out. And I'm so yeah. grateful to say that that I've book has that. saved their life. Yeah, saved their life. And um, I've heard from lots of people that have attempted suicide and, and um, gratefully are still here that had no perspective really of what they would have maybe left behind mm. until they read that book. And for me, yeah. I feel like I'm an ambassador for my sister many times. She's doing her work where she's at and progressing, but I often feel her near when I speak mm. and in this book and the mission that it's kind of taken on of its own, the doors that have opened. Does it ever feel like a burden to be that sounding board for so many people who I imagine are reaching out to you who are in desperate need of help? And I wonder how you deal with that. Um, This week alone, and especially at a certain time of year, which is spring, March to May, I was contacted pretty much every day about someone that was suicidal or lost someone to suicide. And even this week, I've had a couple of conversations with people that have reached out. When it starts to feel too much like a burden, I know I've... um, (laughs) I've put myself too much in the equation. When I put God as the center and I'm just here to be the mirror that reflects it back or the GPS to say this is where I found him if you want to turn that way uh, I'm happy to have a conversation about that then it goes better when the books is speaking the conversation becomes about me then it can get confusing it can be burdensome I, see that. I will also say that whole glass ball, rubber ball thing, mm-hmm. I have to be wise. And I'm sometimes not wise. Sometimes I feel like I'm being asked to do more than I can possibly ever, ever do. And miraculously, um, if I'm prayerful about that, God has allowed that to happen and it's worked out. Other times I've said no to something and I... I joke last summer, my son happened to be home one day and I got a call to do a speaking event and I said no. Yeah. And he had never heard that before. And he was like, did you just tell them no? <laughs> and I said, did you think I said yes to everybody? And he said, well, and I said, no, I don't. I don't say yes to everybody. But I will say that my capacity has changed and I've grown, you know, and I've what 
what I do know is that now I have new things that make me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, yeah. the things that made me feel really uncomfortable three years ago don't make me feel as uncomfortable anymore. I've mm-hmm. done five books. So there's yeah. a certain pattern that I, a muscle that I've developed. Well, now I'm working on a project right now that is a departure. It's a completely different kind of book. Oh, that's cool. And it is completely stretching me right now. Mm. And, you know, in, in, in your question of feeling comfortable, um, I try to make it about God. And when I make it about God, um, I'm happy to be one of the instruments, but there's a lot of instruments he's using. And I had a reporter ask me once who's known me for a long time and he's well known here in Utah. And he said, um, can you imagine would you have ever imagined what has happened in your life the last few years? And the books and the speaking is what he was talking about. And I said to him, you know what? I hope anyone that knows me or knows my story, the the takeaway they have from that is that God will use anybody. I'm by far not the best writer. I'm not the best speaker. I'm not the best mom or the perfect wife or the whatever. I, I just feel like I'm enough. You know, mm-hmm. and God is saying to all of us, like, I'll use you right where you're at. And you don't have to have it perfectly figured out for it to work. When I start to feel burdened down, that's when I've taken over the, the steering wheel. And, and I'm trying to control it or do too much and make it about me. And I've got to step back and, and let go and reach out for support. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm... I'm grateful for the opportunities I have to give because I always get back from that. But I also have resources and people I turn to for my support. You know, I ask each guest this final question, which I feel like you might have just answered. And it's what have you learned about yourself the past few years? I know you could um, and should write a whole book on just that question alone. (laughs) Was there anything else you wanted to add to what you just said? I kind of feel like answers that, but anything else that you would like to add? Well, I I would say the first thing is that I can own a dog. That's the first thing I've learned because (laughs) (laughs) anyone who knows me, like that, that was the first month was a challenge for me. Um, and, but in seriousness, that, that sounds jokingly, but you know, I, I feel like I've learned more than ever how quickly life can change and, and how quickly it goes by and that he'll, God will use me and he'll use you and he doesn't require perfection for that. And then finally, I would just say the most important thing that, that listeners I hope hear is that I really believe every prayer is heard and it's answered. But my life, you know, especially in the last 46 years, I have so many examples of where some prayers were prayed for a long, long, long time. Mm -hmm. Some prayers I'm still praying. You know, Monica, there are certain things right now that I, I still wrestle with. I keep praying for and I keep wondering if there's healing or solutions or answers or whatever, and they haven't come. But I also have, you know, a huge trunk full of examples of where not only were my prayers answered, but they were answered better, more magnificently than I could have dreamed, even if they weren't timed the way I thought. So I keep learning that lesson and, and that, that 
that to me is what surrender really is. Like God expects for us to get up each day and do our part. He never expects us to do it without him. And that doesn't ever mean that we're going to see the results that we think. And I've had to surrender that. You know, in writing books, you hope that someone, one person is touched. But if you get too focused on how many books are sold or, you know, when you're raising your kids, especially that's a marathon and it's not a sprint. And you're not sure if what you do when they're 10 is ever going to translate to when they're 19 or 20. And so I would just say that there's such a awareness for me of what it looks like to surrender but still keep showing up. And I hope that if you have listeners that are not that don't have faith or that that walked away from their faith and they're trying to figure out their faith, I would just say there's too many things that are in in um, conflict in the world right now that find some faith. Find something that you can anchor into, even if it's, you know, in 12-step they talk about, even if it's just gravity. Gravity is bigger mm. than you, yeah. right? The sun, we just had the eclipse here in Utah, and it was a big, huge deal. Everyone drove to Idaho to see it even more powerfully. And and so I think there's always something bigger than you, and you have to have that because when I get too hyper-focused on the me part, that's when I get off track. That's when I get shut down. That's when I get um, afraid, super, super afraid that I'm messing something up or that I'm not good enough or or that something bad is going to happen that I won't be able to handle. Looking back in the last few years, I've learned more um, about how quickly this all goes, which is a good thing and a bad thing. You know, sometimes it's like for, for me, summer went too fast, but sometimes that also means that the hard things are happening are going to pass quicker than we think, even though they yes. feel like they're dragging. So I love that. go get a dog. I, that's yeah, that's dog. my last bit of advice. <laughs> I love it. Gainalyn, this has just been an interview that was so worth looking forward to on my end. Uh And I mean, your books have kept me up till three in the morning so many nights and I love them. I'm sorry about that. Oh, it's all because I I just needed to learn from, from who you had writing and, and you as well. So I just want to thank you again for being willing to be on the show with me. Well, thank you for the invitation, Monica. It has been a pleasure. I love I love um, the work that you're doing and to be a part of it in any way. I feel honored. Gina Lynn, you have had such a tremendous influence on my life. Thank you for the way you live, how you share it, and what you teach. I highly recommend you follow Gaina Lynn on social media. I've linked to her various social media outlets on my show notes, but definitely get her books. I mean, they are incredible and I love them because they share many different people's stories as well on these same topics. If you loved this episode, then screenshot it and share it out with those you love. You can text it to them or you can put it on social media. I love seeing those online shares, especially it gives me a huge boost to my day. And I know that whenever I see one, it's helping fulfill my mission to transform lives through this podcast. And you guys are the ones who are doing it. So I can't thank you enough for doing that and also for coming back here each Wednesday. 
If you haven't yet, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts for me. That's also known as iTunes. (laughs) I'd really appreciate it. I hope that you guys were feeling good about how we are now interweaving some sponsorship through here. I try to make sure I have some special music playing for those mid-episode ones so that you always know it's a break. And you know what? Again, this is good news for us and I am just so excited for where this podcast is heading and thank you for being on the ride with me. Next week, Heather Jensen from Try and Run will be on the show. She is a triathlete and has done several Ironmans on top of many, many marathons. And I had such a blast chatting with her. So come back next Wednesday for that episode. And until then, take care of yourself.